Today's episode of our conversation with scientists, our first episode ever, is with Bill Earnshaw. He's a professor of chromosome dynamics at the University of Edinburgh, member of the Royal Society, and the director of the Earnshaw Lab, researching how mitotic chromosomes are formed and segregated using a wide array of technologies. Professor Earnshaw, or as he insisted, we call him Bill, was generous with answering our questions leading up to and during the podcast, and the enthusiasm with which he talked about his science was intoxicating. This process of contacting scientists such as Mr. Earnshaw has led us to a new chapter of our scientific career. We're constantly learning what it feels like to be a scientist in an exponentially changing world, hoping to one day accumulate enough skills and experiences to be at least able to replicate and progress the work of previous researchers, or, as Sir Isaac Newton put it best, stand upon the shoulder of giants. Now, enough of my cheesy introduction. Here's our conversation with Bill Earnshaw. Cool. Um, yes, I think we'll start off uh, just by getting you to talk about your experience that you've had over your scientific career. It's like, what have been the special moments? Uh, maybe as a student, or uh, we read about when you were studying uh, for your PhD with Steve Harrison. I know that was uh, special for you, but also any exciting moments you've had in your lab. Like what stands out to you? Yeah, okay. So, well, I went to university uh, in, uh, in, in a place called Colby College in, uh, in Maine, in the United States. It was a liberal arts college. So that's, I don't know if you have them in Australia or not, but that, that's like, you don't have a very focused degree, but you, you focus in a general area. So my general area was biology, but I also focused a lot on art. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be an artist or a scientist. But uh, in the end, I decided to, uh, to go with a scientific, uh, to, to give science a chance. And I got, a, I got a, a fellowship that enabled me to go to MIT to do a PhD. So I did my PhD at MIT and I did it in the lab of a guy named Jonathan King. And what we studied was we studied bacterial viruses. Pretty, pretty topical now, it's funny. It's a subject that was really hot then because it was, uh, it was some of the most sophisticated work on molecular assembly was done in bacterial uh, viruses back in the 1970s. And then it kind of slid a little bit out of fashion, but with, with first of all, CRISPR-Cas, that's all the response to bacterial viruses. And then with all the interest in COVID, uh, there's just a lot of interest in, in viruses in general. It's, so it's come back. So that's what I did my PhD on. And I, I was uh, and one of the things that I got a start on on my PhD that was really, really interesting to me was like multidisciplinary approaches. So my PhD supervisor, my direct supervisor was a guy named John King. And he was, a, he was a bacteriophage geneticist, and he was also interested in how bacteriophages are assembled. But while I was taking classes during my PhD, I took a class with this guy, Steve Harrison at Harvard, who's a really famous crystallographer. And with Steve, I realized that actually the way I could answer the problem that was set up in my genetics lab was to go to Steve's lab, so purify phage particles in, in, my, in my home lab, then go to Steve's lab and use x-ray diffraction and modeling to study them. So I was doing uh, genetics to make, this, make the viruses I wanted. I was doing biochemistry to purify what I wanted to study. And then I was doing uh, uh, crystallography, uh, small angle scattering and, and modeling studies in Steve's lab. So I put that all together. And uh, throughout my whole career, I've just, I, I've followed on from that. So I like the idea for me has always been to focus on a problem, not a technique, and then find all the different techniques that you need to use to try to solve that problem. As a student, really you'll tend to focus on techniques. You'll think mostly about techniques, but I think what your goal should be as you grow in a career in science, it should be to define problems and so become problem-oriented, not technique-oriented. But as a student, you'll almost always start by being technique-oriented. Everybody does. You're talking about working in your lab. I'm wondering what you thought the purpose of laboratories was, scientific laboratories in general, and how they established. Well, initially, the laboratories established, uh, I mean, Initially, when you're starting out, you're the best person in your lab. 
because you've just finished a postdoc, you know how to do all the stuff you want to do. And people come because they want to work with you. Uh, so either you advertise positions or uh, if, if students reach out to you and they want to get experience, if you have, if you can, you accept them to come for, for visits to learn things. Then over the course of years, as things go, you, you find that you actually may need to do more than what you learned to do as a postdoc or techniques move on. I mean, like I went, <laughs> this is amazing. As when I went to do my postdoc, I went to the MRC Molecular Biology Lab in Cambridge. This is the place that has the highest number of Nobel laureates of any place in the world. And when I went there, they, every year they had like the informal lab talks. The first informal set of lab talks that I went to, this guy named Cesar Milstein got up and he talked about making the first monoclonal antibodies. That, that was like the first talk about that. And then like, you know, like an hour later, Fred Sanger gets up and gives the first talk about DNA sequencing. I mean, like, it was amazing to be there. And, uh, and so like whole genomics, all this stuff, this was all invented after I started my lab. So I couldn't be an expert in that. So I had to attract people to come to me who were either willing to become expert in it or already had experience. So initially your lab is based on what you know, but then later on, you, if you're successful, you recruit into your lab people who know other things. And so in that case, the students in my lab, now, now the students in my lab will learn from the postdocs in my lab more. And I will sort of be sitting back trying to run the whole show, trying to coordinate everything. But the experts on various things will be postdocs in my lab and students will learn from postdocs and sometimes junior students will learn from more senior students and sometimes junior postdocs will learn from, from more general postdocs. So I, yeah, I think this is probably clear to you guys, but as, as high school students, so you want, you want to get a really great uh, grounding in basic biology. And so you got to go to a good university, then you're going to hopefully, then you're going to hopefully do a, a, a PhD. You don't have to do a PhD. There are lots of careers in science for people who don't want to do PhDs. They just want to be uh, laboratory technicians or so on. And that's a perfectly, you can have a perfectly satisfying career. But if you then do a PhD and you want to do a, become a lab head, you'll have to do a postdoc. So you're not going to be finished until you're in your, well into your 20s. Uh, and possibly even in your 30s. You're not going to be starting a lab before your late 20s or your late 30s or, or early 30s. But good thing is you'll be paid. So starting from being a PhD student, it's already a career because you already get paid. You don't, being a, you don't pay to be a PhD student. Somebody pays you. And then from post students and postdocs, they're already paid jobs. And my postdocs uh, now, I, I have some postdocs, we're getting really good salary. So, it, you know, it's, it can be a, you know, yes, you're not the boss yet, but you're still doing okay. Yeah, um, from one of your videos, Professor, online that I was watching, uh, I think there was Just a meeting in Hyderabad. Okay, Just don't call me Professor, it's like, <laughs> sure. nobody calls me. Uh, actually, this goes all a bit way back to when I was a university student. And I had my first talk after I had been accepted to go to MIT. And the head of graduate, the head of the graduate school there was this guy named Salvatore Luria. Uh, if you grow, uh, if you grow bacteria, you'll use LB, which is Luria broth. He hated being known for that because actually he got the Nobel Prize for this incredibly complicated experiment that he did. But anyway, so I was going, Professor Luria, and he goes, no, 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 call me Salva. Everybody calls me Salva. <laughs> and actually, in basic biological research, everybody's on a first name basis. Okay. It's, so, that's, that's, sure. that's very good. So, yes, uh, Bill. Uh, watching one of your videos, I think it was uh, from a meeting in Hyderabad, you had a very good uh, statement that, that I was watching on a train on a way to, to work, and it really inspired me. It was about you saying that being a scientist is great, you know, you, you can start a project and you do what you want, and if you suddenly make it more interesting, no one's really going to care, everyone's going to support it. That's, uh, getting, that was really inspiring stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 Ideally, in science, you can, you just, 
follow where the science takes you and you follow where your interest takes you. And I wrote a series of three research grants in the United States where there was this one set of experiments in there that I never ever did. And we still have never done them because we all came, always came up with better ideas. And so we always did the other things. Uh, yeah, as, as long as you can come up with really good ideas, then, uh, then you're really free. It's a really free career. But it's, a, it's not a career without uh, pressure and tension because you've got it because it's expensive, right? So you got to convince people to give you money. That's right. In order to convince people to give you money, you've got to be productive. You've got to be productive and you've got to have great ideas. And you've got to be able to write grants. So writing grants is, it's like, I've got a great idea. I can figure out a really cool way to solve this, uh, you know, to answer this question that I'm asking. And I'm now going to convince you that I'm the best person to do this and not some other guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's a little, that becomes stressful, but if you get it, wow, what a feeling. And then you, then, then you've got no boss. I mean, I, I suppose I have a boss, but I never ask anybody's permission to do anything. And I haven't for like 25 years. But of course, I, I, I get in trouble. But, how do you think, how do you think you can like learn or practice coming up with those great ideas? Like, what do you think it takes to develop that? Well, you have to read a lot hmm. uh, and you have to learn how to assess what you read. So probably at your level in, in your training, the most important thing for you to do is to learn how to create, how to critically assess the information that you get. So you get a lot of information on the internet. A lot of it is bullshit. A lot of it is, you know, some of it is lies. A lot of it is wrong, and some of it is beautiful and wonderful and absolutely right. And there's no formula to use to know. So you've got to learn how to look at what people tell you. And then as you acquire knowledge, so you, you've, got to, you've got to get basic knowledge in your classes. As you acquire that knowledge, you've got to learn how to apply that knowledge to figure out what is true and what isn't true that's one of the things that i i didn't have in my education and and my kids did so my kids were educated i moved to scotland when my daughter was two and my son was four uh and in the scottish education there's in, in lots of the subjects there's two tracks to each subject there's two grades for each subject one is called knowledge and understanding and the other one is called inquiry skills and knowledge and understanding is what the book says and what the teacher says. And inquiry skills is how do you figure out what's true? And how do you assess what you read? And how do you assess the information? When my son, so my son went to Cambridge and he to medical school, and he actually had a terrible time in the first two years because English students are taught in a completely different way. They don't get the inquiry skills part. So all of the exams in the first two years, you were just supposed to give back to the teachers what they told you in class. And he was always doing this other reading and putting other stuff in, and he was actually getting points taken off for it. But then in the third year, the English students all hit the wall because now in the third year, you were supposed to figure out how to do stuff. It was like, he was home. He knew exactly what to do. So he went, you know, he did it, he did extremely well. Uh, so you've got it, that business of figuring out. So you, when you eventually, when it comes time that you'll be reading scientific papers, you've got to learn how to read defensively, just like you drive defensively. If you believe stuff that's wrong, it will hurt you later in your career because you'll lose time and you might follow false pathways. But there's, you know, there's no magic answer to that. That's, right. that's a, learning how to assess what you're, you know, first of all, the first thing you have to do is acquire the basic information, build the foundation. And then when you want to go up from that foundation, try to find a mentor or somebody, you know, look at examples of people who you can see are successful and you can see, think creatively and try to figure out how do they do it? Try to, so you try to find a mentor and follow them. Sure. 
it's kind of like what we're trying to do now, I suppose. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, speaking of great ideas and that tension that you speak of, um, where do you sort of see the direction of the, the, of the scientific community in general, um, in the near and, and perhaps the far future for um, youth like us who are, you know, looking forward to get involved more and more and get into universities? Yeah, so I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to say something else first, and then I'll get to that. So the first thing is that if you really want to be a scientist, you can have an amazing life. I mean, you know, I've got, I've, I've got, a, I've got kids who are fantastic, great time, and I spend a fair amount of time in the Himalayas. I do the stuff I want to do in life, but my science is 24-7 somewhere inside there. Somewhere inside my head, there's always something at some level going on. And when I have an idea or when something strikes me as interesting, I think one of the things that separated me from other people was I was just somehow or other able to like file that idea instead of going, not now, you know, like I'm doing something else now later. I, yeah, I would go not now, but I would put that in a, somehow I could put that in a box and come back to it later because uh, my best ideas have come to me when I've been out running, when I've been hiking, when I've been, you know, just like in the early morning, you're lying in bed, not really doing anything. You know, it's, that's when ideas, so you've got to develop the ability to be receptive for ideas. So ideas will come anytime. Now, you know, the direction of the community, I, well, I, I, that's a, that's a kind of a grandiose kind of question to ask, or that, you know, like, I don't know. You know, you don't get to decide to be a prophet, you know. Uh, you know, uh, that's one of the things that really pisses me off is, is like you see these Nobel laureates get up there and they lecture about, uh, you know, they lecture about the directions that science should take. And they, they you know, I mean, you know, so what would you say is like at the moment in the world with the COVID epidemic, would it be fair to say that probably one of the most important scientific discoveries of all time was PCR? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Every, you know, every the right accurate hand. COVID tests all use PCR, yeah. right? Do you know how PCR was discovered? I imagine accidentally. You're not, I should, I, I'm probably not supposed to tell you this. Uh, <laughs> Gary Mullis discovered PCR was driving from LA to Las Vegas, tripping on acid. And he had this idea. And that was PCR. And he went back and to give him credit, instead of just tripping on more acid, he went back and he followed up his idea and he published the paper on PCR and he got the Nobel prize. And then he went to the beach. I mean, he was the kind of not like what your role model maybe is supposed to be like, but he got this amazing idea and he followed it up. So ideas can come anywhere and the scientific community can jump in strange directions based on these ideas that people have. Uh, sometimes, you know, like CRISPR Cas9, this was a group of people doing stuff that wasn't very fashionable studying, you know, bacterial resistant to bacterial viruses, who cared? At the time they were doing it initially, nobody cared. So it's very hard to predict the directions, the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, how, the directions that the world will go in. Um, I can't hmm. answer that one. I guess, in a way, could you say that, you know, philosophically in you know, an existentialist way that I don't know is perhaps the answer to that and what we're researching now is the key yeah I mean you know I would love to be able to tell you the direction that the world should go in in science but really what I would like to figure out is how chromosomes form when cells divide that's my passion that's right. and that's what I you know uh and I'm probably not going to figure it out before I have to retire uh, but uh, I'm having really a lot of fun trying to think of every different creative way that we can use to try to study that. And if that drives some aspects of science forward, then I'm really happy. I mean, we've developed technologies and, uh, and done things that have, have had an influence on the way people have thought about things. 
and a number of the proteins that I've discovered have been pretty important for a, a sort of established kind of small fields of scientific research, but that's not what I was doing it for. I was doing it because I was curious and I really wanted to know the answer. Hmm. Um, I think related to that, how do you how do you classify the importance of scientific problems? Uh, like you mentioned earlier, uh, like studying bacteria wasn't very fashionable. Uh, but in all but can you like frame it in terms of like when we're going through university and what we're looking towards to like get really specialized in? How do we find out what's important? Uh, you know, where the research will have like important consequences. What are your thoughts on that? Or do you even think it's a good way of looking at it? What do you think? Well, I think that you will be struck by if if you get into science, you will be struck by a passion. Something will just seem more interesting to you than all right. other things. Uh, you know, like my son's doing a PhD now, and it's like the it's like the old joke of the parents who can't talk to their kids anymore because my son is. Uh, he's doing a PhD in immunology and signaling. And man, that's a language, the, the complex language of cellular immunology and signaling. That, that's like, that's over my head. I don't, I don't, you know, and that's his passion. You know, his passion wasn't cell, the cell biology or the cell cycle like his father had. Uh, he just got really interested in that. And, you, you know, he's a dermatologist. He's interested in, in melanoma and that it, he just that just that's what struck him so you'll uh, i think that uh, you, uh, you will either it might, it might be it, it's likely to be influenced by the people you're around so it's a really good idea to try to cultivate relationships and get yourself in positions where you are uh exposed to really uh people who have a broad understanding and they can they can enable you to be knowledgeable enough so that you can look in lots of different directions you know instead of going to a place where everybody works on one thing everybody thinks about one thing it's going to be very hard for you to break out of that uh, uh, and then i think and reading reading and listening so when you if when you talk to people if you ask them questions about their so one of the one of the really great pieces of education or aspects of education that I got as a PhD student at MIT was that when uh, we were taught that when somebody was talking about what they were doing, their science, or was giving a lecture about their science, or we were reading a paper, we were supposed to think, what would I do if I was them? What would I do next? So we were supposed to try to understand what they were doing, understand whether we thought it was any good or not, whether we thought it was right or whether we thought there was problems with it. So that's things like controls and experiments. But then we were supposed to try to think about what would I do next? And if you can kind of get yourself into that mindset, then you will learn something from every time you talk to somebody because you'll have a little bit of experience of trying to put yourself in their head and see what you would do if it was you next. And that broadens you. And you want to be as broad as you, you want to have reasonably good expertise as broad as possible before you focus in on an, an area. And if you do become a scientist, you will in, eventually have to focus on an area because it's, it's in a way, it's kind of disappointing that, you know, I can't, I can't solve the problem of how cells divide. I'm sorry, the problem of how cells divide is a thousand problems. I hope I can solve one of those problems, one of those thousands. Right, so eventually I have to focus, but I don't know where I want to do unless I can have a sort of a. So I combine broad knowledge with the ability to focus, and then the ability and the ability to focus. A lot of this involves the ability to read critically and understand what's right and what's smoke and mirrors that people are putting out there. Uh, and people do put smoke and mirrors out there because you have to get your papers published. And so you may make a discovery and then you send your paper to a journal and it goes out for review and the referees say, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And those may not be things that you're interested in, but if the editor of the journal says, well, you have to answer those comments or I'm not gonna publish your paper, 
people end up incorporating. Uh, so scientific papers often contain a lot of stuff that's in there, not because that was the primary interest of the people who wrote the paper, but because the reviewing process sort of demanded that they do that. And they don't care quite as much about that stuff as they do about their original driving impulse. Is there so a way around that? That's why you have to learn how to, you have to practice and learn how to read scientific papers and how to get scientific information. Sure. But in, in terms of uh, publishers sort of having their say and imposing on the science, what do you, what do you think are ways around that? What have you tried uh, in your opinion? What do you think would work in terms of moving forward? Uh, it, or is it just hard to get around? No really easy way about it. I mean, you try to do the best science you can and yeah. then you try to publish it in the best well if you you know if you're ambitious you try to publish it in the best journal that the sort of highest visibility journal that you think you can uh, that you think that it will be accepted in now bear in mind that the what's called impact factor of a journal I, this is probably something you guys haven't heard about yet uh, but you could, you know, the word impact has, you know, meaning. So the sort of the impact of the journal is, a, it's not everything because everything is available online. So people can, if you figure out how to put the right keywords in, in the abstract of the papers that you write, people will find them even if they don't come out in a top journal. But everybody wants their papers to come out in a top journal. And if you, uh, if you want to have a successful career, you have to publish a few papers in pretty good journals. Otherwise, you just won't get a job. So you have to find the fit. What's the best journal where we'll get reviewed most fairly? Uh, and then, you know, like, I mean, I've been doing this game for like 40 years. I mean, so I know a lot of the journal editors. Uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of the journal editors are a lot younger than me now, and I don't particularly know them. But... It's, that's a that's an art. Don't worry about that. That's like after after university, after PhD, uh, you know, as a postdoc, a senior postdoc, you start having to think about that. So don't worry about that. So your best bet is uh, associate your training uh, with a successful laboratory where the lab boss is good at that. And then you will become, you'll learn how to do that later. That's not something you do as a student. Students don't tell me where they want to publish their papers. I tell them where I think we can publish the papers. And sometimes, you know, like I recently had a, had a pretty senior postdoc. He's done something that I thought was really exciting. And, um, you know, he said, well, I think, you know, I want to publish it here. And I said, well, I want to go for molecular cell. So molecular cell is like the second best journal in cell biology. And in February, it's coming out in molecular cell. So, you know, he was going to settle for something a lot lower. And I said, you know, in this case, no, screw it. We're going to go for it. And we actually uh, didn't have a particularly hard time getting it into molecular cell. I've had other things that I couldn't get into much more modest journals. Everybody's just going, right, that's a load of bollocks and I'm not taking it. Uh, including... I mean, I had one paper that was rejected at four different journals before I before it finally got accepted, and it got accepted in a pretty low-level journal. And I'm a fellow of the Royal Society because of that paper, <laughs> not because wow. of papers that came out of the top journal. Right. All right. So, hmm. I'm wondering also, do you have any insight into industry culture in comparison to like the more publish or perish mentality in academia? Industry culture. Yeah, like scientists and industry. Yeah, so I have uh, uh, a number of people from my lab have gone to work in industry and uh, they're very, very happy. Uh, and other people I've known who've gone to industry haven't been very happy. So industry, uh, the thing about, I mean, there's a lot of jobs in industry and uh, a lot of them are very well paid. Uh, if you want to publish papers, you, you want to find out if you're looking at a job in a company, does that company publish papers? I once got a grant from people at, uh, at Smith Klein, pretty big drug company. Uh, for, this is for, this was a grant for the weirdest reason. It was a grant because a couple of people in that company who had access to money and therefore could get a grant to me 
wanted to publish papers, but in their division of Smith-Klein, they believed in patenting everything and keeping it secret instead of publishing mm. papers. So they wanted to cooperate with me so they could get their name on papers that would be papers that would come out of my lab, not out of the company. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, so you don't always publish if you're with companies, but you have the chance if, if, if you want to see uh, if you want to see advances get turned into real world effects, doing that by a company is the way to do it. Hmm. Uh, the, just bear in mind one thing, and that is, you know, if you get a job for the company to work on X and uh, somebody decides that X isn't very important anymore and they want you to work on F and they say, we want you to drop all your interest in it. And, they, and you were hired because you're an expert on X. They say, now we want you to work on F. What are you going to do? Say, no, <laughs> no. You're going to say, okay, I'll change. So companies can change. So uh, if, you, if you're driven by a particular research passion, maybe a company might not be the best thing. But if you're driven because you want to improve human health, for example, a company might be the best thing. That's a very interesting consideration. Thank you. Um, I think I want to move on to competition. Uh, do you think competition gets in the way uh, of the practices of scientists? Like, that's what Yash mentioned earlier about publish or perish. Do you, has that like, disturbed you at all? Uh, and where do you think it starts along the scientific journey? Like, is this something that we should think about around university, competing with other students or you know, trying to get scholarships or uh, like research fellowships like the ones you had? How does it influence uh, a scientific career? I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of it as us against them or me against everybody else. I would, yeah. I mean, competition is real and there are some people who are driven by competition and uh, you know, there are, there are people who work in my field who I just try to have nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. I don't like them. I don't like what drives them. And uh, I, I, I try to have as little interaction with them as possible. Mm -hmm. But throughout my career, some of the best fun, the best times I've had have been through collaboration. So competition is a problem. Collaboration is wonderful. And uh, at the moment, I have, I, I, we have, we have, my lab has a number of collaborations. And every Wednesday, I get together with one of the world's most famous genomics guys and one of the most, world's most famous polymer physicists, because we have a collaboration going together. And this is just like, it's like, every Wednesday afternoon for two hours, I just live in this world of what, this is what science is supposed to be like. But it was never, it was never previously like that in my career. These, these guys are completely unselfish. They love to talk about work from other people and the collaboration, we make all the cells, we do all the genetics, we make all the samples. One guy does all the genomics analysis and then the other guy, the other, it's actually two guys now because one is, was, he was a PhD with that guy, but he went from a PhD to a group leader. Uh, they, they, can, they can do the physical modeling that we can't do. And so each of us can do something that the others can't do. And it's just like a perfect symbiosis. And, That's amazing. Uh, I, I would say as, uh, that you're not going to do that as students, but as students, I would say it's much better to study and group, to find a few people who you know, like you found each other that you uh, are uh, that you trust and that you like and study as a group and become stronger as a group uh, eventually you'll spin off and separate you won't all do a phd in the same if you go to do, if you go on to do a phd you, you almost certainly won't all do a phd in the same lab you'll go your separate ways separate ways at some point but there's a lot to be gained from from collaborating with others. It's always stronger because somebody else always sees things differently from you. I mean, I can, I can give you an example of that. Uh, when I was a photographer, I once went to a talk by this guy who you won't have heard of named Minor White, 
he was he was a very famous photographer and also a sort of theoretical. I mean, he was interested in the theory of understanding about images. And anyway, he gave a he uh, so he put a slide up on this screen, and then he had this. He said, "Okay, now I want you to. Here's what I want you to do." And I'm and I'm going. This is really stupid. So he wants. I want you to do some kind of movements or dance or whatever you want to call it. Pick a partner and show them what you see. And I thought, how stupid is this? So I end up with this guy who I didn't know, I didn't particularly like very well, and I'm trying to do my thing. And then he does his thing. And then I realize that I'm looking at everything that's bright in this picture, and he's looking at everything that's dark in the picture. So by doing that, I was able to understand that a different way to see the picture. And so when you collaborate, even when you study, when you talk about various subjects, each of you will have your own way that you look at things. And if instead of just competing with each other, you discuss things, go over them together, work on them and try to try to bring all, you know, try to bring your group up to a high level, you'll learn new ways of doing things that you wouldn't come up with by yourself. That's great, great words. Um, well, you know, on, on that note, I feel like if, if others agree as well, um, we would steer away a little bit from the very science-oriented questions and have a more colloquial conversation. Um, you were featured in, in the Steve Norman Ruckles painting, The Right to Know. Um, ah. You're very much an uh, enthusiast of arts yourself. Uh, in what ways do you think arts and sciences are sort of interconnected, if you do believe that is the case? Yeah. Well, okay. So my college, every January, you had a month of independent study. Uh, the first year I worked with a science lab. Uh, no, the first year I wrote a research project about ancient stone monuments. The second year I worked in a science lab. The third and fourth years, I never came out of the dark room during daylight hours. I spent the entire time doing photography. And I, I and photography, and this is sort of abstract photography, had become my passion. And uh, I decided to go to MIT. So I actually got this fellowship, which meant that I was free as a PhD student. And so I got accepted by a bunch of places. I decided to go to MIT because there was a, this guy, Minor White, who I just mentioned, was at MIT in the architecture department. And I wasn't sure if I would want to do photography or if I would want to do science. I just wasn't too sure. Because to be honest, in science lab, I could never identify the unknown. I could never get the right number of grams of white precipitate in chemistry. It just didn't work for me. So I go to MIT. And then I discover that the, like the, the part of my brain that was getting massaged by making these really weird and interesting uh, photographs was also very happy when I came up with a new approach to design an experiment and then did something and got results. So the creative urge that I was getting from art, I could also get from science, mm -hmm. right? And it's not so different because at least with bench science, you have something that's interests you, you try to think of a way to solve this problem, and then you gotta be able to do it with ease. You gotta be able to do something with your hands. And that's kind of what art is. Art is, you, you know, you have a conception, you want to communicate something somehow or other, then you have to be able to produce it. In science, it's the same. So I think that science can be as creative as art can. Science can also be bloody boring. And like, you know, uh, Sidney Brenner, who is a, a Nobel laureate, uh, well, what would he, he was most famous for work that they, for developmental biology work. Anyway, he said he thought the DNA sequencing should be done in a penal colony. Because it's, you know, it's that kind of stuff, the sequence, a lot of that kind of work, it's pretty boring and routine. And it's true that some of what we do, even when we're answering interesting questions, we have to do some work that's kind of boring and routine. We have to isolate plasmids. We have to do plasmid preps to make the DNA to do, then do our experiments with. It's not interesting. You just have to do that. But the, the goal is 
to be able to come up with creative ways to answer questions. And then that's, that's not that different from art. What's been the most satisfying question that you've answered, do you think? Or the most satisfying experiment that you did with your life? That's really... Are there too many to count? That's kind of hard to say. That's kind of hard to say. I mean, one of the things that when I started, when I started doing cell biology and studying the structure of my uh, of mitotic chromosomes, so chromosomes and dividing cells, uh, cell biology was kind of divided into two camps of people. There were people who worked on things inside the nucleus, and then there were people who worked on things in the cytoplasm. And they kind of didn't talk very much to each other in the cytoplasm. And so the Journal of Cell Biology, which was the, you know, in that area, it was kind of the, the professional journal, it still is the top professional journal in cell biology, was dominated by people who were interested in cell membranes and cell and filaments and systems that work in the cytoplasm and not by things that were going on in the nucleus. And what we did, one of the things that we, we did was we, we decided using monoclonal antibodies to try to identify new proteins and chromosomes. And so we isolated chromosomes and we identified this antibody. We, we, we got cells that made this antibody and this antibody did the weirdest things because in, uh, in non-dividing cells, it was inside the cell nucleus. And then as cells went into division and you could start to see mitotic chromosomes form, it was on the chromosomes. And then it went to a very particular region of the chromosomes called the centromere, which is kind of the control region of the chromosomes. But then when the chromosomes, uh, when, the, when the cells started to divide and the chromatids separated, it left the chromosomes and it went to the cytoskeleton of the cell and to the membrane of the cell instead, and it concentrated there. And uh, that the, the complex is called the chromosomal passenger complex, and it's actually uh, it's a protein kinase. That's an enzyme that puts uh, puts negatively charged phosphate groups on proteins and changes their behaviors. It's one of the ways cells regulate processes by changing the charge of proteins. You know, you know that uh, you know the two negative charges will repel in one another. So if you have a, a, a negatively charged microtubule and a positively charged chromosome that go to, that's going to attach to the microtubule. If you now stick negative charges on the chromosome, it'll come off the microtubule because negative repels negative. And this, uh, this thing that was moving around between the nucleus and the cytoplasm was the first time anybody had ever seen anything that sort of coordinated events in the nucleus and in the cytoplasm. And, uh, that's one of the things that I'm really uh, happiest with. And man, we got a lot of grief over that for years before people believed it. <laughs> How did you convince them? Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, I just kept working on it. Right. And actually, uh, if I hadn't moved from the United States to Scotland, I might have been forced to stop working on it because mm. the people who were giving grants, research grants in the United States, decided it wasn't interesting. They wouldn't give us money mm. to work on it. But when I have that that happened i lost that grant to work on it just as i decided to move here mm -hmm. and uh here the welcome trust gave me money and we continued to work on it and that was so i at first had just one protein that was doing these movements and nobody knew what that protein did but then when i came here we showed that that protein formed a complex with what we call a protein kinase and kinases are the enzymes that put the negatively charged phosphate groups on other proteins. So now we had our protein hooked up to a protein that we knew was doing things and we kind of knew the sort of thing it was doing. Then it turned out two more proteins joined that complex. So it's actually four proteins. And basically, so you have this protein that can put phosphate groups and make positively thin charge become either neutral or negative. And the other three proteins just move it to different places in the cell at different times. So that it, it, it's always, the one subject's always doing the same kind of thing, but it's now doing it in different places. And that's how it regulates different steps as cells divide. This makes me excited. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I, no, I, no, I was just reading about that. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that, was, that was amazing. But then, you know, we had this, uh, we, we, so we studied cell division. So we studied, yeah. uh, we study cell division, but one of the problems with studying cell division is even if you have cancer cells that grow in culture and they grow really well in culture, if you look, you never see more than like, you know, five or 10% of the cells are dividing. Most of the cells are not dividing because division only takes about an hour and it takes about 24 hours for like HeLa cells, you know, from Henrietta Lacks. 
the mm. most famous cancer cell line, HeLa cells, take about 24 hours for them to divide. But only one hour of that is mitosis. Well, I had this postdoc in my lab who was, uh, who said, I said, well, I've been thinking about things and I came up with this method. And then she put up this slide and she, and in the slide, every cell was entering division all together. And basically she figured out a chemical trick, a way to make a mutation of a really important regulator, regulatory protein in the cell and take, make it so that we have a cell culture. And in that cell culture, every cell in the culture is in interface. So it's waiting to divide. Every cell has a nucleus. We wash out an inhibitor and within five minutes, every cell is dividing. Now we can study things by biochemistry that people could only ever look at before. So that's really cool. And that's what we're focusing on now in our lab is what we can, you know, what sorts of things can we do if we can know that every cell in the culture is going into division. And that's what this paper that's going to come out in molecular cell in February is about. We're looking at the first events of cell division, but these are, divi these are events that happened before anybody knew cell division was happening. Because people, the earliest stage of cell division has always been defined as the stage where you start to see the mitotic chromosomes start to form inside the nucleus. But we can look before that. We're looking 10 minutes before that and other things. And there's a lot of stuff happening. And, you know, things are moving around and getting ready for the chromosomes to form. But nobody could ever see them before. Now we can. So that's also pretty exciting. So, you know, yeah, I mean, you're, it's the latest thing is always really exciting. I'm exciting to hear about it. it's just like what we're learning about in the basics in biology and the HSC in year 12 in Australia it's just like building on that now like much more complex yeah. level it's really cool to hear about that yeah I mean you've got to learn the language you know that's what that's what you learn in high school that's what you learn in university you've got to learn the language if you can't talk the language you, you know by and you by the language I mean you know the words and the concepts of how things are moving around and what what cells are doing mm. you don't you have to learn that and then uh then you move on and then you can be creative if we're coming towards the end of our time uh there are probably thousands of people just like us three transitioning from high school to university looking to develop our understanding of like scientific careers as well as university and a career in general. What advice do you have for these young people? Try to look for what's interesting in what you're learning. Look for what, you know, look for what's surprising. Look for, look for something, uh, look for something that you just think is cool. And then try to understand how it happens. I mean, I mean, one of the keys of science is you're driven by, many scientists are driven by a desire to figure out how do things happen, you know? And, you know, what's the mechanism? And uh, if you kind of follow, if, if you kind of pursue things to think about things in that way, uh, you know, in class, ask questions, push your teachers a bit. Um, hopefully you'll have teachers who will like that. Uh, get them to explain things to you. Get them to suggest things that you could read to figure out a bit more about it or videos, you know, places where you can get material online. That's a really good answer to a really grandiose question. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, don't be, you know, don't be scared. Just find something that interests you and, and try to figure out a bit more about it. And then, then that may not be that may not be what will interest you next week or next month. That's okay. That's cool too. You know, you don't have to decide anything now. A, a scientist is somebody, in my opinion, a scientist is somebody who identifies a question that's intriguing to them, tries to figure out how to solve that question, and then tries to solve the question. Now that could be, that could be in politics. That doesn't have to be in how a cell divides, or you know how uh, you know a whale can hold its breath, or whatever. You know that. Could, 
but that's that's a kind of a scientific approach. And don't take things for granted. And uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and science is not democratic. This is really important. What most people think is right is not what's right. What's right is what's right. <laughs> okay. So that, you know, don't get fooled into the, everybody says this is the case. Well, everybody may say this, but everybody may be wrong because everybody has been wrong lots of times in the past. And so sort of as a tradition, we're looking forward to make a, you could call the quotes book of, of all the great scientists that we meet in the process of uh, our research. Um, if you'd like to, would you want to give us a word of wisdom, maybe one or two sentence or a quote that we can add to that quote book as a final question to, to the end of this meeting? Never do whatever you decide to do in your lives because you think it's important and it's going to make an impact on the world and people are going to respect you for it. Do it because you love doing it. Because I hate to tell you this, but 50 years from now, nobody's going to remember who you are. It doesn't remember what you discovered. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, nobody's going to remember who I am. I'm not doing this because it's going to make me famous. I'm doing it because I love doing it. And if you do it because you love doing it, it's never worth doing it by climbing over the back of somebody else, right? It's much better to do what you love side by side with people who also love the same thing and enjoy it. Whatever you do, I hope that you guys manage to have a life where you enjoy it. You don't do it. I get money. I get pretty good money. But I do this for a lot less money. I don't do it for that. I do it because I love doing it. Sure. So find what you love and follow that. Sure. We're very grateful. Uh, you mean very yeah. supportive for us? That was really uh, pompous. <laughs> uh, that was fantastic. Uh, it's, a, it's a good end uh, for oh. the video. Okay. Well, excellent. Thank you very much.